This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This is Chapter 35 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we chat with Howard Kaplan, whose book, The Damascus Cover, inspired the movie that just earned the top honor at a prominent film festival. Our Paul Murnane talks with CBS newsman Bob Schieffer about his new book, which looks at the rise of fake news. Then we'll hear from New York Times bestseller Eleanor Henderson, who struggled to reconcile her father's memories of growing up in rural Georgia with the violent reality she uncovered in her research. Forty years after Howard Kaplan wrote the Damascus cover, the serious set spy thriller has finally made it to the big screen. The film was a big hit at this year's Boston Film Festival, earning six awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Our Pat Farnack spoke with Kaplan about the book's long journey from the page to the screen. You wrote the Damascus cover decades ago. It was uh, 1977, correct? Correct. And and the book went out of print for a long time, and now it's back. Could you tell us the uh, saga of how that happened? <laughs> uh, the book was successful, very successful in its time. It was on the LA Times bestseller list, translated into seven languages. And if you think about it, especially in the days before ebooks, bookstores have a limited capacity of how many titles they can stock. There were something like 40,000 books published a year. So the book had a nice run and disappeared, which is fairly common. Then 40 years later, (laughs) it was picked up and made into a feature film. One of John Hurt's last films, also with Jonathan Reese Myers. So the book has had a new life and is even an e-book for the first time in its history. Wasn't the, uh, the book was at a friend's house? And the director yes. of, of the Damascus cover, the movie, happened to see it? Or how did that happen? Pretty close. The director wanted to do a Middle East thriller. He was looking for something serious and suspenseful, and he mentioned it to a friend of his. And she said, wait a second. I guess they were at her house. Mm-hmm. She went over to her shelf. She got down this old copy of the Damascus cover, and she said, read this. And a week later, he and I had coffee. And the deal was done. That's amazing. Did you have a role in making the movie happen? I didn't have much to do with the script. The director wrote it himself. But in the editing process, once the film was shot and completed, he lives actually not far from me in Los Angeles, although my son is in Brooklyn. I want to get that in. (laughs) And works in legal aid in Queens. Oh, nice. So he came over with a DVD of the cut of the film. And he said, we're having trouble. The editor said, fix the first 10 minutes. This is a problem. (laughs) And I looked at it and said, I can fix it. I would cut out eight of them. That's the problem. These are things that don't advance the story. And he sort of, the wonderful guy, Dan Burke, and he said, you know, you're right. And that was, so now I'm 
very high regard in, in people attached to the film. This is going to mean a whole new career for you, I have a feeling. I think so. I mean, I'm getting a lot of attention. It's interesting for me that now in this world of books, customer reviews are actually, I think, more important than newspaper reviews. And I've been doing very well on Amazon. I think the book's a 4.3 out of 5. And it's getting a whole new readership. That's great. That's great. The Damascus cover is about an Israeli spy who may be washed up. Now, when you wrote, this is what's amazing to me. When you wrote this story, you were a young man. Not that you're not young now, but you were younger. <laughs> let's put it that way. A fair amount younger. <laughs> but it was the story of a man in middle age, really, or uh, close to that, wondering if he's still up to the task. And it rings so true. And yet you wrote this when you were a lot younger. I had been sort of in the student movement. I had been in the Soviet Union. I'd been involved in smuggling manuscripts. I got arrested by the KGB. And I came back after I was expelled, and I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And I felt sort of washed up and burnt out at 24. And I thought, (laughs) well, if I write a novel about this, everybody's going to laugh. Like, who cares if you burn out at 24? You know, have a Coke and get on with it. (laughs) So I decided to take that, that feeling and transmuted into a man in his 50s, which at the time I thought was very old, and try to put that, the feeling, into someone in middle age. And it seemed to have worked and didn't have the self-consciousness of autobiography. Damascus is really a character in the book as well, not the Damascus, though, of today. No, I think that's one of the things that inadvertently I'm very pleased about, which is I've been to Damascus prior to the Civil War, and I spent a lot of time doing research to give people an idea of the city. For example, there's a, there's a line in the film that was lifted directly from the novel, and it says Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city on the planet. It's an oasis in the desert. The rivers come up from Lebanon. It's lush, rung with you know rivers and fruit trees. And I did a lot of time describing what the marketplaces were like, the covered shook. And now it's become, the novel's become a bit of an artifact for what Damascus and Syria looked like prior to all this destruction in the Civil War. So the book has a lot of history and a lot of description in it. It's the right time for that book, though, to look back like that. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but the story wraps up in a powerful and unexpected way. Did that just come to you when you were plotting out the story? It's a fabulous question. Nobody's ever asked me that before, but I have a perfect answer for it. (laughs) I did not have it planned out in advance. I was writing the novel. I was about two-thirds of the way through the first draft, and suddenly it occurred to me, wow, I could turn this whole book around with a twist that nobody seems to see. Not the same twist as in the film. Uh, Nobody sees it coming. People don't see it coming. And people read thrillers sort of expecting a twist. Mm. So you're sort of watching for it, and people still don't see it coming. So that's how it happened. I wish I could say I was smart enough to have (laughs) thought about it from the beginning, but at least I got it two-thirds of the way through. In writing the book, you have said in one interview that it's really about, in the world, the need for reconciliation. 
And I was pondering that listening to uh, the president's speech at the U.N. I don't know if you caught it. I did, actually. I usually don't listen and read the highlights, but I did happen to hear the speech. I don't think you can ever create reconciliation by beating the other guy over the head until he's in the ground and bleeding. You have to look at the other person as an equally human being. There was a philosopher named Martin Buber who wrote a famous book early in the century called I and Thou, which meant I and you, I have to see you in every encounter and you have to see me. So a lot of my work, the theme that runs through all my novels, I have a novel of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict called Bullets of Palestine that does the same thing. And it's about seeing the other person and trying to find common ground with him. And they've done this both, and they took this theme up in the film. And John Hurt has sort of the important line about this near the end of the film. And I think it's all, I think it's what we must do in every area. And I don't think, you know, bluster and threats tend to work ever in any area. They don't work in human relations, they don't work in marriages, and they don't work in international diplomacy. So I'm very adamant about looking for reconciliation everywhere. Do you think you'll do any more dabbling in the spy world? (laughs) Personally, I think I'm retired. I got arrested and held by the KGB for four days. What I do wonder is, because this was so long ago, whether I can safely travel to Moscow now in the post-Soviet era. I've not done it, but I consider it. But so far, I think maybe it's best to not look for trouble, especially now I've gotten a lot of publicity. I may have a new dossier that I'm not eager to have added to. Not only that, you may have to go in in disguise or something. (laughs) Now, I sadly wasn't familiar with your work before the Damascus cover was re-released. What would you suggest I read next? You mentioned Bullets of Palestine. I think that's the book to read next. You know, it's been also been getting, I think it's a... 4.4 or 4.5 on Amazon. Uh, The Damascus (laughs) cover was a bigger book in its time, Uh but people seem to be resonating also to Bullets of Palestine because it's very strong in this area of reconciliation. It's about an Israeli spy and a Palestinian agent who have to work together to stop an extremist Palestinian. And one of my favorite reviews ever is a, a a review from a Palestinian newspaper in Jerusalem saying after reading the book, he walked into the street and started to see Israelis in a different light, in a more human light. So that's what I'm looking for. CBS News political contributor Bob Schieffer has penned a new book titled Overload, Finding Truth in Today's Deluge of News. He spoke to our Paul Murnane. Tell me about your new book, Overlord. It's uh, Overload. It sounds like, well, you are the Overlord, but it sounds like uh, <laughs> it sounds like you were sitting in the offices of some of these powerful media people and you wanted to talk with them about how it's done, which must have been an intimidating thing to get a phone call. And they say, hey, Bob Schieffer's waiting in the lobby. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it was uh, really fun. Uh, this is based on a series of 44 podcasts that we did Uh, at the Center for uh, Strategic and International Studies. And uh, we just sent out to find out what was going on in the world of journalism. Uh, We knew things were changing. I had no idea how much they were changing. 
Uh, I think we're in the midst of something right now, this communications technology revolution, that is having as great an impact on our culture as the invention of the printing press had on the had on the people of of that day. Yeah. It has changed everything, some for the good, some for the not-so-good. Uh, the not-so-good news, 126 newspapers have folded in the last uh, 12 years, and uh, we're seeing an onslaught of fake news, news that is simply made up on purpose. Uh, this shooting in Las Vegas is is the latest example of that, where the morning after that, you heard reports that the shooter had converted to Islam, that he was some part of uh, Al-Qaeda or of ISIS, that he was a big fan of Ra- Rachel Maddow. Uh, all of this stuff that is just totally made up out of whole cloth, some of it being generated on both Facebook uh, and uh, other social media by uh, Russian uh, websites that disguise themselves as as American websites. And it is just totally clouded the whole situation. Uh, Who can blame people today when they say, I don't know what to believe? And And that's in the book what we tried to sort out. And it would be nice to know where this is going, where this technological path leads us, but that's not clear. It would be nice to know what the destination is, and that probably unnerves the people that you were talking to a great deal. Well, in the end, uh, we will be stronger for this. The technology will make, uh, will make uh, us stronger and make uh, communicating easier. But in the meantime, it's going to be a kind of bumpy road. Because one thing, people have to be on alert that everything you see and hear on the web is not necessarily true. Some of it faults by design. Uh, it puts new pressure on those of us in the mainstream media. We have to be especially careful to be accurate. Uh, And we also have a new role here. Uh, In the old days, when our competitors made a mistake, we let it go. Uh, Now we have to call it out to make sure people know this is simply not true, and we have to be willing to tell people why. Because once this becomes part of the lore, I mean, think about this. There is still a percentage of people in the United States who think Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Well, how much fact-checking do you have to do to finally wipe that out? This awful story in Washington that uh, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton were running a child pornography ring in this uh, pizza place uh, in Washington, totally false. And yet, the owner of that pizza place still has to have security because there are still people who believe that's true. And and that is the job, our job now uh, in the mainstream media, is to make sure people are getting accurate news. And uh, also to point out uh, where some of this false news is coming from. The president uh, uses Twitter like no one we've ever had in the Oval Office before. And um, he has retweeted and put forth some things uh, in, in which there is some doubt. Um, you know, what do we do about that, and where is that taking us? Well, I wish he wouldn't. <laughs> Let me just put it that way, but I don't think he's going to pay much attention to what I say by, uh, about that. But uh, I, I, it really makes me nervous uh, to hear these things that uh, just seem sometimes to come just off the top of his head. And uh Last week, when he basically undercut the work of his own Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, 
who had said uh, he was looking for ways to uh, uh, to have some sort of a conversation or some sort of contact with the North Koreans over nuclear weapons, he puts out a tweet and says, uh, uh, don't waste your time, Rex. Uh, we'll do what we need to do. I, I Perhaps he's got a plan that I don't understand, but I don't see how that helps anything. Yeah, I mean, some people say it's just Twitter, but it's foreign policy. It's talking about war with North Korea. It's talking about heavy things in the 100-character or 140-character universe. It's also the president of the United States speaking, and this is the most powerful office in the world, the most powerful bully pulpit in the world. Whatever the president says is going to have some impact, Uh, but we're seeing uh, the current president operating in a way that uh, no other president has has ever operated. As I'm speaking to you, the president is uh, in Puerto Rico, and then he's heading to Las Vegas. Um, some people believe that he has an opportunity to change things, to um, to turn things around, to uh, appear to people in a different way. Um, you know, you cringe at the thought of opportunity in these things. But in Puerto Rico and Las Vegas, there is a chance to kind of turn things around in the Donald Trump narrative, isn't there? I think people will watch and judge the president by what he does in the end, not so much about uh, what he brags about or what he says he's going to do. When he made the uh, famous uh, deal with uh, his new friends, Chuck and Nancy, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, uh, to uh, uh, talking about finding a path for the dreamers. But what he also said uh, when he made that deal, he got he got aid in the in the pipeline and headed toward uh, toward Florida and, and Houston when it needed to be. So I thought that was a, a wonderful thing that he did. Uh, if he can get down there to Puerto Rico and see for himself what dire straits those people are in and get the aid moving faster than it's moving now, I think that'll be a great thing. And I, I hope he is able to do that. But uh, criticizing people uh, who are crying out because they don't have food and water, I, I'm not sure that's uh, that's uh, a very helpful thing. It's wonderful to hear the voice of Bob Schieffer on the radio. And, uh, Bob, it's always great to talk with you. And any time you want to come by and talk on the radio, you know, the door is always open. Well, I appreciate that. And, and uh, we've talked a lot over the years. And um, <laughs> it's good to renew, renew the conversation. In the 12-mile straight, Eleanor Henderson tackles the difficult issues of race, poverty, family, and violence in 1930s rural Georgia. I spoke with her about the sometimes uncomfortable read and what she hopes readers will take away from the book. It's a book that's set in 1930 in a fictional county called Cotton County in South Georgia. And it's named after a road that my father grew up on called the 10-mile straight. Um, But it's a fictional road in this case called the 12-mile straight, and um, it gets its name because of this violent act that takes place in the first chapter. So the book opens with a couple of twins that are born to a young white daughter of a sharecropper named Alma Jessup, and one of the twins is white and one of them is black. And so shortly after their birth, the town grows very suspicious, and Alma's father and her fiancé accuse the closest black field hand, uh, Genus Jackson, of raping her, and then he is lynched and his body is dragged down that road called the 12 Mile Straight. And so the story is a story of this family and the town and people connected to them 
trying to come to terms with their complicity in that violence and um, to kind of um, move on and, and raise these twins. So it's a, a fictional story, but um, in many ways inspired by um, some of the stories I heard and didn't hear growing up. My next question to you is going to be, what drew you to write about this part of Georgia during this time period? So my father was born in 1932 in um, Ben Hill County, Georgia. So not really quite the same kind of town, but it would have been in the same area. And he was born to a family of sharecroppers. And I grew up hearing stories about hard work on the farm and innocent fun. He was one of eight siblings, and so he had a lot of work to do, but also really pretty fond memories of growing up on the farm. And so I always thought that I wanted to write a book about Georgia, but I wasn't sure what that story would be. Um, And when I began researching um, the period when my father would have been a child on the farm um, during the Depression and Prohibition, um, I began to to discover what a, a violent period it was in Georgia history, in particular the year 1930. So between 1927 and 1929, there were no recorded lynchings in the state of Georgia. So there was a period of relative peace that had been achieved. And then in 1930, there were five, uh, actually there were six, including the the first um, that happened in January, just a few miles from where my father grew up. And I never heard about that lynching. Um, And so I was really fascinated and horrified by those numbers and those stories that I read um, about those cases. And so I created this fictional uh, story that uh, sort of is a composite of some of these other stories. Were you torn at all between the nostalgic view that your father had for the place where he grew up and what you discovered about that part of the South during your research? Very much so. I love Georgia. You know, I um, grew up there um, went to family reunions there as a kid and very much loved, you know, going to my grandmother and grandfather's house and was really also really charmed by the stories that I heard um, about my father. You know, I remember really sweet stories like his sister um, on his brother's back while he was plowing the field and she would have her little feet tucked into his overall pocket. You know, so um, I had this really kind of um, sweet image of life on the farm, and and then I had these really the horrifying reality of the research, and um, and it was difficult for me to reconcile, and then it was also sometimes difficult for me to um, have a conversation with my father where we could both kind of agree on a reality that would be. Um, colored by both of those experiences, because ultimately it was very important for me to, um, you know, paint a, a nuanced picture of that time and place that, you know, there was love um, in this place and in this family and good intentions, um, but also a system that was incredibly corroded. And I guess the the next question in that line of thinking would be, you know, race relations are really central to your story. Do you think ideas and feelings have changed a lot between the time you were writing and now? That's an interesting question. You know, I think in some ways, um, certainly, you know, I think any person who reads this book or were to read these headlines would be horrified by the act of lynching. But, you know, certainly we've seen that word, that phrase being used perhaps more metaphorically um, about, um, about black men today. 
Uh, and so, you know, I think it's like the concept um, and certainly the issues of racial injustice are very much with us today. And in fact, when I started writing the book uh, six years ago, I, I was a little um, unprepared for just how relevant this book would be uh, today. Uh, another way of saying that would be I was a little ignorant to the idea that um, this book would be so relevant. But you know, I worried that um, we did, wouldn't need another novel about the Jim Crow South, you know, that we'd learned those lessons. But as I began to you know, research and continue to talk to people about this book, it became clear that, you know, these wounds are still very much open, you know, all the way up to um, Charlottesville. Um, you know, the, that uh, mentality that brought about all of that violence uh, on that day, you know, is very much, I think, the same human um, behavior that we saw you know, 80 years ago. You speak of wounds. Uh, blood is a recurring theme, whether you're writing about the spilling of it or the science of it. Do you mean for it to be represent that no matter how different we think we are from each other, we're the same on the inside? I'm not sure that that's um, that's my intention, but I like that idea. You know, certainly I think, you know, um, the way that we thought about blood uh, in 1930 is different than we think about it today. The science of, of blood typing was just beginning. And so um, when um, scientists uh, begin to be curious about the paternity of these twins, you know, they can't run a DNA test. They have to. Um, they have to test their blood types. And so the idea that our blood might tell us something about us, that uh, it might tell us that we're different from somebody else, um, was somewhat new. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that it, it is a common refrain, you know, today that we're, we're all the same. We, um, you know, have all of the same blood. We, you know, race is not biological, right? And I think that that is tr a true um a true sort of truth that comes out of this book. But um, I think it might be a little bit simple just to, to simply say we're all, you know, we're all the same. I think that's one way that we, you know, we try to solve um, problems today by simply saying, well, let's just treat each other um, better because we're all children of God and, and we all deserve love. But um, really, I, I hope that people today and, and when looking at my book, will will look at not just the individuals, um, who are all the same, but, you know, the fact that the realities weren't the same and, and look at the systems um, that allowed these people um, to abuse the power in ways that they did. And if I can switch gears, you talk a lot right. about eating clay in this book. And I have to say, as someone born and bred in New York, this is something I've never heard about. Is this something that's still done? It is something that's still done. People are really fascinated by this, and I was too. Yeah, people um, in Georgia, you know, a small a small pocket of people. It's not a really widespread practice, um, and you know, people throughout the South um, have been known to eat clay, um, and you know, white clay in particular is really valued for. Um, some say it's nutrients, you know, some say it's taste, and there's actually a, a documentary about it that's really fascinating. Um, so, you know, a lot of people even in the South are really surprised to hear that this happens. And it's been said that um, women in particular, pregnant women in particular, and African-American women in the South um, you know, have been known to eat clay, perhaps because of the nutrients that it might provide. So it's, you know, a little bit of, I mean, still has these kind of mythic uh, connotations, but it was intriguing to me to think about ways that characters might really be that bound to the land that they're, that they're using it for their nutrition. Thank you for indulging me that question. <laughs> <laughs>
So finally, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but what do you want readers to walk away from this book thinking and taking with them? I hope that they will look at the world that we live in today. You know, I I hope that when readers read my book or any book, they will um, have a full experience of living in another place for a while. But this isn't a really comfortable place to live. And I think it's okay for a book to make you uncomfortable um, and to give you a lens through which we can look at the problems that are still very much with us today. Eleanor Henderson, author of The 12 Mile Straight, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. That's this week's podcast. If there's an author you think we should feature, let us know by emailing us at books at WCBS880.com or reach out to us on Twitter at WCBS880books.